Hi, it's Alana, one of the producers of Unsettled. It's been five years since we started making the show. This fall, our team has been reflecting on what we've made so far and planning for the future. To help us shape those plans, we've created a quick survey for you, our listeners. It won't take you long, and it will help us majorly. Check out our show notes for the link, and thanks in advance. We're closing out our fifth year by diving back into the Unsettled Archive, reflecting on some of the stories that have made our show what it is. So each of our producers chose a favorite Unsettled episode to share again with all of you. It was hard for us to choose just one, and we each made our selections for different reasons. Next up is my pick, The Great March. It was the first episode of our Gaza series that we aired back in 2019. There are so many reasons this is my favorite story I've helped to tell on Unsettled. It represents a lot of firsts for us. It was our first episode that was reviewed and recommended by podcast critics. It's filled with a variety of voices and sounds from clowns performing for children to sirens and protesters yelling to duck for cover from incoming IDF bullets. What makes me most proud of this episode is the picture it paints of everyday people responding to an impossible situation. In our Gaza series, we prioritized sharing first-person accounts from people trying to just get through their daily lives. What we see from other outlets reporting on Israel-Palestine is a focus on the politicians they blame or statistics that have shock value. And when it came to the Great March of Return, that was on full display. But our reporting for this episode of Unsettled is a departure from that pattern. You'll hear one of the organizers of the Great March torn about the risk of violence participants took when they went there. You'll hear about a protester asking her friend how her makeup looked after she ran from bullet fire. You'll hear the hope and the horror protesters encountered and the difficult decisions they had to make when they were there. When it comes to Israel-Palestine, it's easy to call some people heroes and some people villains, and then call it a day. It's harder to sit with what people deal with on the ground every day. But it's what I'm most proud of about how we report stories for Unsettled. And it's what I hope you get out of listening to The Great March, originally released on January 14th, 2019. Ladies and gentlemen, we are about to begin our ceremony. Please remember to silence... On May 14th, 2018... American and Israeli politicians, religious leaders, and dignitaries met in Jerusalem to bring into effect the unprecedented decision made by United States President Donald Trump the previous December. The United States finally and officially recognized Jerusalem as the true capital of Israel. Today, we follow through on this recognition and open our embassy in the historic and sacred land of Jerusalem. We have no better friends in the world. You stand for Israel and you stand for Jerusalem. Thank you. Peace will come upon us. Peace will come upon us. Peace will come upon us. While the Americans and the Israelis celebrated with songs about peace and shared their hopes for a brighter future, just 50 miles away, Thousands of Gazans assembled at the fence that separates Israel from the Gaza Strip for what would turn into the bloodiest day of the Great March of Return. And despite the risks, people from Gaza would continue to participate in the Great March, week after week, for months. Who are they? What are they hoping to accomplish? 
and what can we learn about life in Gaza from their demands. I'm Alana Levinson, and you're listening to Gaza, a series from Unsettled. This is the first of eight episodes in our series on Gaza. But before we dive into our story, I want to give you a little bit more information about why we're doing this series. Last spring, our team at Unsettled watched as thousands of Gazans took part in the Great March of Return. And we realized only one episode of Unsettled is about life in Gaza. That's in part because Gaza and the people who live there are hard to access. It's close to impossible for ordinary Gazans to get in or out of the Gaza Strip. And until recently, Gaza was only getting less than five hours of electricity a day. So it's not easy to have a Skype call with someone living there. But there's something else. Gaza is a really hard conversation to have within the Jewish community. In my experience, emotions run high and people respond viscerally. For instance, if you bring up the blockade, you'll be accused of not caring about the Israelis in the South who live in fear of Hamas rockets. And if you as far as acknowledge the existence of refugees who wish to return, you'll be told you seek the end of Israel. These conversations get so heated because the stakes feel so high. But the stakes are even higher for the people of Gaza. The Gaza Strip has a population of nearly 2 million, living in just 139 square miles. It's governed by Hamas, which is locked in a seemingly never-ending cycle of violence with Israel. The UN counts 70% of the population as refugees from cities and towns within Israel, and many have hopes of returning to those places. That's an aspiration a lot of Israelis see as an existential threat. And though Israel officially pulled out all of its military and settlements from Gaza in 2005, it still controls everything that goes in or out of the Gaza Strip, leaving it economically strangled. These issues are complicated, and it doesn't help that young Jews aren't likely to learn about them from their schools, families, or communities. Mainstream news outlets aren't much help either. They tend to speak about Gaza only in terms of buzzwords and body counts, and that makes it hard to engage. But this year, it's been impossible to look away. In the spring of 2018, thousands of Gazan protesters came to the fence that separates the Gaza Strip from Israel for the Great March of Return. The protests were originally planned to last six weeks. Instead, they've continued until today. After the first few Fridays of the Great March of Return, I heard a lot of people trying to paint the protesters as violent militants by pointing to the few who threw rocks and burned tires. But the vast majority of the Gazans at the Great March of Return were there peacefully demonstrating for their rights. And in this episode, we'll talk to two of them. But first, A few notes about why we chose to start our series with the Great March of Return. One, because the protests have captivated an international audience. But beyond that, when you look at the demonstrations for what they are, and not what they intend to label protesters as either victims or aggressors, you find a window into Gazan culture, history, the conditions they're protesting, and the barriers they face both inside and outside of Gaza. We'll jump in with how it all got started. Uh... Why do I participate? <laughs> you know why I'm laughing? I am one of the people who started the Greater Ten March with Ahmed Abertim <laughs> on 8th of January 2018. This is why, why, why I'm laughing. We actually didn't intend to talk to Issam Hamed about the Great March of Return. 
Our producer Asaf was talking to him for the episode you'll hear after this one, when he just so happened to mention he was one of the organizers of the march. He said it all started with an article from the writer Ahmed Aburatema. Isam had never heard of him before reading his article last January. But when he sp- wrote in, in the magazine Arabi 21, his article that he's dreaming that all the Palestinians could uh, march returning peacefully to their lands, I uh, went and I searched for Ahmed Aburtema, and then I got his uh, contact. I spoke to him on Messenger. I told him, uh, I want to meet you. Isam manages a medical equipment company in Gaza City. He's also the founder of a political group in Gaza called National Appeal, which focuses on local issues like infrastructure, waste, and water. National Appeal was set to run candidates in the 2017 Palestinian local elections, but the elections fell through because of clashes between the rival factions. But Isam continues to dedicate much of his time to political activism. So when he heard the news about the United States moving its embassy to Jerusalem last December, he felt that it was an affront to the Palestinian people. For so long, he'd heard the United States lecture Palestinians not to make unilateral moves. And now, here they were, doing exactly that. I felt that we have to do something. We have to do something. After he contacted the author of the article, Ahmed Aburatema, through Facebook Messenger, they made a plan to get together a couple days later. The first planning meeting for the Great March of Return was just a couple people sitting in one of the organizers' homes. But as the group started to promote the idea, more and more people quickly came on board. And not just people in Gaza. So we had uh, some guys uh, from Turkey, some guys from Malaysia, some guys from London. We created something uh, called uh, the International Committee for the Great Return March. And then we started the meeting over Skype every few days in order to organize ourselves. And this is how it started. So we started talking to, to, to everybody we could talk to. Me and Ahmad, we started visiting a non-government organization to talk to the heads. We started to appear on, uh, on TV. By the end of January, everyone in Gaza was talking about the Great March of Return. Isam even set up a Great March of Return radio program to reach Palestinians all over the world. <laughs> The International Committee for the Great March of Return was ready to take the idea to Palestinian political leaders. Thirteen Palestinian factions hold a joint weekly meeting in Gaza. So Isam and other Great March of Return organizers went, prepared with a press release. Yes, this is the first press release. We, we published many of it, and we started approaching people. This is it. While we were talking, Isam found the press release on his office desk and held it up to the camera so I could see it. I'll read you some of the English translation. Quote, The refugees' lands, villages, and towns beckon their return. Some of them were never inhabited since the Nakba. So why can't they exercise their right when they still possess the deeds to their lands and the keys to their homes? We, we prepared this long before we published it. Because we were talking at that time with the Palestinian factions to take a decision whether they want to join or we will go ahead. So they were late giving us the answer, so we published. We went ahead. (laughs) Yes. After we published the press release, they immediately answered. 
All 13 of the political factions at the meeting eventually backed the idea. So they set out to create a unified message for the Great March of Return through a set of principles. We have written in the principles that we want to return in peaceful manner, that we will not shoot a bullet, we will not throw a stone, we will not fight with anybody, we will only walk with bare feet towards our land. This is it. This is it. Peacefully, absolutely peacefully. And Isam worked to spread that message. He even went on TV hoping to reach the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Telling him that there is no point of opposing this movement. There is no point. Palestinian people have decided to return back according to international resolutions. They are not doing something opposite to the law. They are no. They are doing something with the law. So we want to cross. The international resolution Isam is talking about is UN Resolution 194, which says, quote, Refugees wishing to return to their homes and live at peace with their neighbors should be permitted to do so at the earliest practicable date. The vision we had is that we are, we the Palestinian refugees, are armed with international resolutions. So if we try to be violent, then the international community will criticize our violence. But we do not want to be violent. We just want to walk down, cross. We want to go back to our land, to our homes, to our farms that we were, we were uprooted from. Finally, on March 30th, 2018, Isam set out in the morning to attend the first day of the Great March of Return. When I reached the, 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 uh, the camp there at 10 past 10, I didn't believe what's, what's happening. I thought there's nobody, when I saw the scene, there was nobody in Gaza in his home. Everybody was in the, in the, in the camp. I didn't believe the numbers. People did not believe that somebody could make their dream to return back to their, to their homes and lands that they were uprooted from become a reality. So everybody went to the to marching camps to be there for that historical moment. I myself could not believe my eyes. Honest to God, I could not believe my eyes. 30,000 demonstrators came out to participate on the first day, and many thousands more have come out to the weekly events that followed. In the summer of 2018, we talked to two young members of the organization We Are Not Numbers to hear what the marches looked and felt like from their point of view. Uh, my name is Ahmed al I'm 24 years old, and I was raised up uh, in Deir al in the center of the Gaza Strip. Ahmed first went to the Great March of Return on the second day, and he went back many times after. My name is Zahra, Zahra Sheikha, and I am 21 uh, years old. I live in the middle area in Gaza Strip, in a particular place uh, called uh, al Baraj. Zahra went once, on April 6th. Zahra, like Ahmed, went to the march as a participant and to document the experience. I was a little bit scared or afraid because uh, it's a new thing and uh, uh, couldn't expect what could happen. I, 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 this, is, this was my first time to go to a protest. 
when I heard about the idea, I didn't get excited for it actually because I thought uh, this will never work. People will not uh, protest for one month and a half. This is me being honest. When I went there and saw that amount of people, numerous amount of people, I was shocked. I was amazed like all these people actually do, uh, do not uh, want hatred. They want uh, peace. They want to coexist with, with Israel. They simply want to go back to their homes and lands. And th that's it. If you've been following the news about the Great March of Return, you might not picture a joyous cultural celebration. The coverage around it has focused mainly on the violence and bloodshed. Zahra and Ahmed will talk about that too, at the location they describe as the front of the march. But at the back of the march, far away from the fence and the Israeli snipers, you would go there and you find like a close to an Arab market. Lots of vendors, uh, maybe like restaurants who are on vans, you know, where people buy things, eat things, enjoying. You would find like entire families, fathers, mothers, sons, daughters, even kids, infants, even very old men and old women. They were all gathering there, sitting, uh, buying ice cream. was like a festival, literally a festival, because there were um, trolleys that selling uh, uh, sandwiches, uh, drinks. The people, most of the people at the back, they were enjoying actually, and uh, uh, they were laughing, talking, taking pictures. There are some cultural events uh, happening, dancing, dabka, uh, uh, folklore, and uh, uh, the people are starting to, to doing some creative things. Like a group of clowns in bright colored overalls, painted faces, and big floppy hats performing for children. There were also jugglers and acrobats putting on shows for the crowds. But it wasn't all fun and games at the back of the march. People were there protesting too. But when I went like closer to the fence, these gestures of life started to disappear a little. Before the march had even begun, the Israeli Defense Forces announced that its snipers had been ordered to shoot live fire at anyone who tried to breach the fence. The more I get close to the fence, the more I uh, saw ambulances and camps for medical doctors, the sounds of bullets. When I went like close to the fence, I was like uh, 300 meters away from the fence. I would see another entire world. Lots of people raging against the occupation, dozens of people throwing stones at the Israeli soldiers. But they were like one meter away from the Israelis, you could say. The, the Israeli soldiers hid behind uh, hills of, uh, of sand. Only you could see their rifles and their helmets from behind the sand. Zahra also went close to the front to document the march for We Are Not Numbers. There was a, a good distance between uh, our spot and the front lines and the Israeli snipers, but it was close enough. She was with her closest friend, Hanin. They were looking for a good place to shoot a video when the soldiers started firing in their direction. We were walking uh, forward, getting closer to the fence and uh, burning tires. And then all of a sudden, we saw men running backwards and couldn't recognize, at my mind, uh, that they are shooting. 
the snipers, the Israeli snipers, they are shooting. Um, until I heard a voice, I heard someone saying, run girls. I didn't, I didn't actually look back to see if he was a real man or it's an imaginary voice in my head. And I started running, Hanin was next to me. We had no, uh, we had no, we had no escape only but to run. And even running at that, at that specific moment wasn't assuring that you are going to live in the next moment. Once they did get to a safe place, Zahra noticed her friend Hanin was crying. I went, I, I held her, told her that we didn't die. It's okay, we are alive. After she settled in and got her balance back, I started laughing. It was a hysterical laugh and I couldn't just control myself. I only laughed because, for God's sake, what, we <laughs> what just happened? few seconds ago. After Hanin got her balance back uh, and stopped crying, uh, she asked me a question. <laughs> she, she asked me, is my eyeliner okay? <laughs> my eyeliner, is it okay? So, <laughs> so I was laughing and telling her, for God's sake, <laughs> this is not the time for makeup. <laughs> Thankfully, Zahra and Hanin survived, but not everyone did. The more you stay there, the more you see people getting shot, getting killed. And I never forget that kid, he was 10 to 12 years old actually, and he got a bullet in his belly, and he died instantly. And even the people who are not throwing stones, some of them were eating ice cream and they were getting shot for doing nothing. For Isam, as an organizer, seeing all of the violence from the very first day made him want to end the march right then and there. At 11 o'clock, we started to have casualties. 11 o'clock, only 40 minutes. It was a Friday. And then I went to a friend of mine, one of the factions, I think the People's Party. I asked him, we have to stop it. He said, why? I said, in the, in the first day, we wanted to send a message. I think the message has been received. We don't want people to die. So at 11 o'clock, I was calling to end this day to start the next day with the sit-ins. But unfortunately, there was no way to control people at all. Isam couldn't stop the protesters from getting close to the fence, so he tried his best to get a message to the Israeli snipers on the other side of it, through an Israeli television correspondent he believed was working with Israeli intelligence. She called him on May 12th, and he said, Please advise the intelligence to let the people cross. They will cross for a few hours and then they will return. Don't shoot at them. The worst is that they will sit in, in one of the cities beside the fence for one day, for two days, and even if they stayed, let them feel that they have done something. Don't kill them. Since the first day of the march, at least 175 protesters have been killed, according to an Associated Press report from December 2018. Both Hamas and Israel have claimed a large portion of those killed by snipers were Hamas militants. But among the dead have been kids as young as 11, medics and journalists. Local Human Rights Watch director Omar Shakir told the AP that the protesters' affiliation with a militant group doesn't make a difference. What matters is that they were unarmed. A staggering number of protesters have also been wounded at the march. 
In November 2018 report, the World Health Organization counted over 24,000 injured. Doctors in Gaza have reported especially severe gunshot wounds. By December, 94 protesters had needed amputations. So many protesters and the March of Return were athletes. And uh, one of my friends is, is the best, actually, the best soccer player in the Gaza Strip. And he was shot in his both knees. And now he, he can never like play football anymore. And he lost his future. So many people from the Palestinian protesters are now are now without limbs because, because they only participated in this peaceful approach. And what's their only fault? Because they were born on the other side of the fence. Ahmed remembers seeing an Israeli soldier high-five the person next to her after shooting one of the protesters. It made him wonder if the soldiers on the other side of the fence even saw him as human. We, we have feelings and we, we love, we cry, we die. Uh, we have families that grieve for us when, when we get shot and when we kill. Zahra and Ahmed are two of the many thousands of peaceful protesters who participated in the Great March of Return, the vast majority of whom were there singing songs, waving flags, and using other nonviolent efforts to send the message to the world that the people of Gaza demand their freedom. That might come as a surprise to those of you who've only heard about those protesters who were throwing Molotov cocktails and flying burning kites over the fence. The Great March of Return has been characterized by so many as a violent Hamas-led effort to break into Israel in order to harm Israeli Jews. And it's not that Hamas has had no involvement in the Great March of Return. Hamas understood the power of the Great March of Return. That's Tarek Bukoni, author of the new book Hamas Contained, The Rise and Pacification of Palestinian Resistance. The Great March of Return was able to do what Hamas had believed only its rocket fire could, which was to negotiate with Israel and to pressure Israel and to bring Gaza back into the fold and the agenda of the international community. Civil society in Gaza was able to do that through a popular resistance movement. You're going to hear more from Tarek later in this series about what Hamas is and how it came to govern the Gaza Strip. But for now, here's what he said about Hamas's role in the Great March of Return. There were instances of people, particularly Hamas members, either using Molotov cocktails or trying to break into fences. But by and large, and we're talking about thousands of people here, by and large, these were non-violent movements, uh, that Israel used clearly violent means to try to suppress. Tarek is referring specifically to the six weeks that the Great March of Return was originally planned for, from March 30th until May 15th, when Palestinians marked the anniversary of the Nakba. And there was no rocket fire from the Gaza Strip during that six-week period. However, burning kites were sent over the fence, which caused forest fires in southern Israel, and rockets were fired starting on May 29th. Still, thousands of protesters maintained nonviolence. How is that possible? For me personally, this is the power of mass mobilization. This is the power of, of peaceful peaceful resistance. And the way that Hamas dealt with that was initially to come out as the party that was supporting the protests. So they would provide the infrastructure for the protests. They would bus people to the fence. They would provide entertainment at the fence, food, organize. So it became the, the fabric of the civil movement. The irony is that Israel began calling it a Hamas movement before the protest had even begun. The protest was meant to begin on the first Friday of March 30th, and Israel began the propaganda of calling this a Hamas movement on the Wednesday. 
So there was already an effort to conflate the two. And it was an effort that was very much pushed forward by the Israelis and which Hamas also very much Uh, jumped on the bandwagon of. I think Hamas needed to maintain its legitimacy as the the government or the movement that is in charge of securing Palestinian rights in the Gaza Strip, so it very rapidly hijacked the movement. Here's Issam again. We, from the beginning, have made a deal with Hamas not to be the main player. We want the people to, to... But we are living in poverty. Who is going to pay for the buses? Who is going to pay for the logistics? Who is going to move the people? To be quite honest. So we do understand. If if Hamas did not come to do this, there would have no greater return march. This is the reality. Then there were some non-militants who breached the fence for other reasons. Isam explained. Some of, of the people, believe it or not, want to go to the fence in order to die. We have seen things like this. I am honest. I have seen people who prepare their statements on Facebook and they prepare videos and they go go there to end their lives, to die. This is it. When you lock people in a prison, end their hope and let them live in absolute misery, no electricity, no pure water to drink, no jobs, no uh, uh, crossing points to leave. This is what you are left with. I asked Isam how he feels about the march looking back. Look, uh, I have mixed feelings. I, 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 will, I will speak now with honest. First of all, I am very, very proud that we have uh, moved the Palestinian issue now and everybody is talking about. But the other thing also is that I'm, I feel very sorry for the people who have, who have been injured in the Great Return March. And some of them have actually incurred permanent disability. Ahmed and Zahra, on the other hand, do not have mixed feelings, however difficult the experience was. Going to the march is um is a good thing even if you stayed at the back of the march it doesn't matter what matters is that you went you had the carriage to go there this affected me actually i it it it, it caused me a trauma i couldn't imagine like run the idea of running from the uh, the live bullets is is scary in itself but i am not regretting going to the march i mean uh, after going to the march, I just sat with myself and started to think, uh, what did I gain from going to the march? Uh, did I really feel that it's something good to go there? Did, did it uh, add any good things to my personality? At that time, I couldn't figure out, but now I can say yes. I am a new person now. And uh, running from the, uh, the live bullets made me stronger. And I think there, there will be no hardship uh, destroying me in the future. Because for God's sake, I faced death. <laughs> yes, it's worth it. I think it is. We have to get rid of these chains 
or we do not deserve life actually if we are silent. If you go through the whole history, you would see every time that there are oppressors and oppressed people, the oppressed never agree to, to surrender. Look, for example, at the Indian people led by Gandhi. So many of them got killed. The, the Algerian people uh, lost more than one million in their fight against the French occupation, but they never give up and they kept on fighting. We might be at risk. We might lose our lives at this point, but the next generations might have a chance to live free. Since this episode originally aired, Ahmed Al-Nauk moved to the UK and serves as the director of We Are Not Numbers, the media organization we worked with for this story. Ahmed also works with Euromed Human Rights Monitor. Zahra Sheikha is in Turkey, studying for her master's in international relations and political science. Isam Hamad has remained in the Gaza Strip. When I asked if there were any updates from the Great March of Return organizers, here's what he said, quote, It is true that the Great March of Return, which began in 2018, was unable to achieve the return of Palestinian refugees to their land, homes, and properties from which they were expelled in 1948. But the idea of walking in a march to achieve the Great Return will remain present in the consciousnesses of the Palestinian people all the time, and they will wait for the right moment to ignite a new round of peaceful confrontation so that the people start crawling towards their dream that they did not leave or forget despite the passage of more than 74 years and despite the change of generations. What we saw in 2018 proved beyond any doubt that the new generation carries the dream of return and receives the flag from their predecessor, who passed away, while waiting for this dream to become a reality. Whether this was your first time listening to Unsettled or you've been following from the start, we want to thank you for listening to these stories and supporting our independent team. And as we plan for the future, we'd love to learn more about our audience, which includes you. Help us shape Unsettled by filling out our audience survey, which is now on our website and at the link in our show notes. We'll be collecting answers through December 26th. We've put together a playlist of these five-year anniversary producer picks, which you'll find in the show notes. Unsettled is created by Emily Bell, Asaf Calderon, Max Friedman, and me, Alana Levinson. This episode was originally produced by me with help from Sophie Edelhart and Asaf Calderon. Asaf Calderon also checked the facts. Our theme music is by Nat Rosenzweig.